Hello and welcome to Objective Health. So in this week's show, we are going to, oh, in fact, first of all, um, my name is Elliot. I'm going to be your host today and I am joined in the virtual studio by Doug, by Erica, by Tiff and by On the Wheels of Steel, Jamie. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> So in today's show, we're, um, yeah, so we're going to be looking at stress and there's many different ideas or many people have different ideas of what constitutes stress. So oftentimes, I think in our modern world, the way that we conceptualize stress is emotional stress. What we're going to look at today is emotional stress is merely one form of stressor and the term stress really encompasses um, a much wider variety of stimuli or um, environmental conditions which the body is placed under and which have specific effects on the body. And thankfully, our body has really adapted to or has, has developed the capacity to adapt to lots of different things which could potentially be harmful to it. Okay, and, and stresses are a part of normal daily life. So they come in the form of it might be an emotionally taxing situation. It may be um, a psychological, some kind of um, problem solving that we have to do in our, in our kind of in our life where it, it causes some form of stress, some mental form of stress. It can be physical. So we come into contact with lots of different toxic substances or even exercise, for, for instance. Um, and our body really does have a good capacity to deal with this. And this can be a really healthy thing. But at the same time, it can become problematic when it goes on for too long. And so in today's episode, we, we're going to look at, at what can happen when the body is under, under stress for a very long time um, and, and when we can't really bounce back from that. So um, just to kind of start things off, here, here is one very basic definition of stress. So this was one of the old definitions, and, and this is a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. And this is part of the picture, but now science has come along and we actually realize that there are also many other factors that, that constitute stress. Um, so... Yeah, we've got a video uh, video to start off with. It's by a neuroscientist. His name is Dr. Bruce McEwen, and he's done a lot of research on the neurobiological effects of stress and how this is affecting various systems in the body. So, uh, Damien, could we, could we put that up first of all? Talking about stressors is to think about uh, something using the word which can be very ambiguous, positive stress. So you feel exhilarated from doing something that has a satisfying outcome, like giving a talk, writing a paper that was successful. And in order to do that, you have to good, have a good sense of yourself, a good sense of self-esteem, ability to that you're in control of what's going on. Um, then there's tolerable stress, where, of course, something happens, major life events, uh, but you're well prepared because of the, uh, your ability to uh, control things and you have good social and emotional support, good material support, and you're able to weather the storm. And then there's something which is called toxic stress, which almost speaks for itself, 
where one doesn't perhaps have those attributes, the neural unhealthy, one has unhealthy brain architecture, we'll talk about what that may mean, uh, and poor social and emotional support. And this then may be exacerbated by early life or, or throughout life, uh, experience of chaos, abuse, neglect, and so forth. So we'll talk about these things. Um, but then... Um, yeah. So it's interesting because um, you don't usually, whenever anybody talks about stress, it's basically like it's very negative. It's a negative, um, uh, negative connotation to stress. Like very, you, you don't hear very often anyone talk about positive stress. Um, but I think, you know, putting it on kind of a spectrum in that way um, makes it a little bit more useful because otherwise you're kind of left with, well, why does stress even exist? Like, why does my body um, deal with, you know, stimulus in this way? But um, I think him pointing out that there is positive stress and he talks about like, you know, exhilaration from a challenge um, or when you have like a sense of control and like you're kind of emotionally stable, like that's still a stressor. Um, so if you, yeah, like if you're giving a talk or if you're, um, I don't know, competing in a sporting event or something like that, that's like a positive stress because although it is a stressful event, you have the resources to kind of deal with that and that it can have a very, actually a very positive effect on, on us as humans. Like we, we actually need those stressors in some way. Yeah, I think it was good that he broke it down in that way also because of that first definition that you gave, Elliot, of stress um, and how it's a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from an adverse very or very demanding circumstance. I think that's how people commonly think of stress. I mean, that's what I always think of when I think of stress, some kind of emotional or mental pressure put on you. But I think that like he said in the video, there are various different types and it depends on the person. It depends on uh, what they're made of, what their metal is, in other words, or how they can cope with certain uh, situations. Like some people might break down under certain conditions and other people might thrive under those conditions. So I think it's an important distinction to make because the way stress is used nowadays, it seems like it kind of doesn't really have much of a meaning. Hmm. Oh, I think you're muted, Elliot. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> I was muted. Yeah, so so that's that's a really important point, right? There is the individual context in that what may constitute a stressor uh, for one individual may or what may be a, a detrimental stressor for one person may actually be a positive stressor for another person. And I think whilst there are definite, you know, toxic stressors, which are kind of inherently bad or objectively bad, um, there is some overlap to some, to some extent. And it seems to relate to an individual's resilience there. It might be their genetic makeup. It might be, Here's an example, for instance, right? So there are certain types of food which contain a wide variety of nutrients. Let's take eggs, okay? So eggs are extraordinarily nutritious. Um, they may be perfectly healthy for one person, but then for another person who has some kind of an intolerance to eggs for whatever reason, it could be kind of uh, 
hereditary. We don't know, but let's say that they can't tolerate that. That will act as a stressor for their system. And that will have detrimental effects on the body when they eat that. And so there's certainly, uh, that's a, a bit of a funny kind of um, example, but there, there seems to be an overlap. And so what, you know, stress for one person may not always be stress for another person. Um, but then the definition that we were just talking about, whereby um, this state of kind of mental or emotional tension, well, it, it seems that actually there are many different stresses on our body that we are not consciously aware of. And we may, we may not be consciously aware of in terms of our psychological state, in terms of our emotional state, we may not be able to um, any, any kind of tension per se, but our body may still be under stress. And I, I actually think that that's the most dangerous thing about this is that when, when people are chronically under the load of stress, most of the time they don't even know about it. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, like EMFs as a really good example of that. Like that's kind of something where people can be exposed. They don't even necessarily know that they're being exposed. They might just be walking through an airport or go into a store or something like that that has like free Wi-Fi or something. And it's like it's, it is a stressor. It is causing a stress response within the, the body. But for the most part, people are completely unaware of it. And it can lead to an overload too. So you know, a combination of those stressors, maybe you're not quote unquote, a stressed person, but you're exposed to EMF, you eat foods that, um, you know, aggravate your immune system, and then it, it becomes an overload, you lo lose sleep, you know, you have emotional tensions in your life, and then you hit that saturation point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, there have been many, um, well, right. Okay. Let's go back to the basics. So stress before around sort of the 1950s, 1960s, stress was kind of a very ambiguous concept. Even Bruce McEwen says that even up to this day is relatively ambiguous because there's no mm. kind of set definition for it. Um, but it was very ambiguous back then. And stress, um, although it's it's kind of been, become popularized now and everyone's talking about it, it, it was not known that stress was causing any kind of physiological damage. Um, and medicine was primarily based on, um, on infectious disease and whatnot and, and acute trauma. And there was no kind of awareness that how we live our lifestyles and to some extent the things that we're exposing our, our body to uh, long-term, even though they may be minor exposures, long-term, these, these things all actually um, have what you might call a wear and tear effect on the body. So in order to kind of come up with this unifying uh, definition or conceptual framework for defining stress and actually um, almost qualifying it in a way that was understandable and kind of objectively measurable, um, there have been many researchers in the past couple of decades who have come up with a, a, a kind of um, concept called allostasis or the allostatic load model of stress. And so if, if you know anything about biology or you learn about cells and biology, even just basic kind of high school biology, then you will have come across a term called homeostasis. 
and homeostasis is is basically maintaining um, a balance. It's another way for saying maintaining function, maintaining balance. And the original kind of definition of homeostasis, it wasn't it wasn't um, sufficient, let's say, to be able to explain how the human body um, could essentially um, go through periods of chronic stress and gradually lose function if that makes sense, gradually become wore down over long periods of time um, and, and kind of um, develop maladaptive functions to, to accommodate that, if that makes any sense. But what, what this allostatic model or this allostatic load model basically um, posits is that the body will attempt to maintain some kind of balance through... Uh, or adapt to different changes in the environment by changing slight variables in how it functions. So for instance, in a non-stressed and healthy body, the, the homeostatic kind of balance would be here, let's say, but then in a, in a, uh, when there are novel environmental changes, when there are environmental stresses, so, and this could be uh, lifestyle stresses, this could be kind of um, relationships, it could be you know, romantic or familial relationships, it could be kind of um, a really stressful job, it could be a poor diet, it could be poor exercise, it could be poor sleep, any kind of thing which is actually stressing the body in some way. What will happen is, is that the body will actually change its set point from where homeostasis is kind of at. So it will change several variables. It might upregulate certain hormones and downregulate other hormones. And that would become its new balance point, if that makes sense. So if, this, if these environmental stresses go on for long enough, then the body's kind of homeostasis, the range for homeostasis will change. And this is called allostasis. So allostasis is how the body is actively trying to respond, is trying to adapt to whatever environmental conditions it's placed under. This is ordinarily meant to be a kind of temporary thing because stresses in the environment should go away. All right. So, you know, if you're being, here's a you know, kind of cliche example, but if you're being hunt, hunted by a, a saber toothed tiger, you will run away. You will like kind of become really stressed. You'll release all of these kinds of stress hormones and everything. But then a couple of hours later, that will die down and you will go back to the balance point. Whereas in our modern, modern world, we are under the influence of many, many, many different low-level stresses. And so that norm, the, the point of normal, has radically changed. So what this means is that those kind of adaptive responses, which were designed for short-term adaptation, they're not designed for long-term adaptation. But because we are constantly under conditions which require that kind of adaptation, then this actually causes a cumulative wear and tear on the body. Okay, And th this is actually referred to as the allostatic load. So this is like the accumulation or the conglomeration of all of the different time types of stresses, which are affecting the body in many different ways, and coupled with the body's adaptation to that, actually leading to 
very kind of dysfunctional patterns of immunity, of hormones, of digestion, of all of these different body systems, they are essentially becoming quite dysfunctional over a long period of time. Hmm. And so this, this is kind of the model. Did, did that make sense? I think so, but it might be helpful if maybe we, we do like an example. So let's say like there's an introduction of a new stressor, right? So somebody maybe um, suddenly has adopted a lifestyle where they're only getting like five hours of sleep a night instead of uh, getting their normal eight hours. You know, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they've, they've just had a baby or something like that. And like suddenly there's this new stressor in their environment. So what you're saying is basically that there's in this allopathic, uh, allopathic, sorry, allosta- allostasis mode, um, load um, model, basically the body would make adjustments in order to kind of accommodate that new stressor. So maybe that would mean that because it's not getting enough downtime during sleep, uh, certain sleep cycles might be skipped or a certain, I don't know, uh, cleansing of the brain that usually happens during sleep doesn't happen as much or something or it has to do more in a, a shorter amount of time, whatever the case may be. But if that goes on for a long enough period, that basically, like that becomes the new homeostasis. Like that's the new level at which it's functioning. So yeah, that is exactly. And because that's not the normal kind of homeostasis level, then it becomes, uh, there are, it's because it's having to compensate basically, it means that um, that can cause wear and tear over the long term. Yeah, that is exactly it. That that, that was a perfect example, Doug. Mm. Um, that compensatory um kind of level of homeostasis is is not the norm it's far from the norm but because it goes on for so long um because it is is trying to compensate all of the time then the cells aren't necessarily designed to work like that and the 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 body isn't designed to compensate for such a long time it's designed to go back to a normal point and when it's compensating you are the 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 mechanisms so for instance let's talk about okay in the the example of sleep if someone say they have a baby and let's say that the baby is autistic all right so ordinarily a mother may lose you know like a couple of hours sleep or lots of hours sleep every single night for a year yeah, and then the baby's sleep would normalize and then they would be able to recuperate. The mother would go back to kind of normal. Let's say that their child was severely autistic and the child's sleep cycles never actually improved. So they were, I mean, there are many children like this who are hyperactive at nighttime um, and, and essentially keeping the parents up, you know, for years and years and years and years. So... In the context of losing sleep, what happens is, is we upregulate certain hormones and we downregulate other hormones. What, one of the consequences of a, a, a night's, a lost night's sleep is that you actually have an elevation of the hormone cortisol. Okay. Now, cortisol is a stress hormone. Um, it's involved in what we call the stress response, both acute, but also chronic. And it's not really, the body isn't really designed to have chronic levels of high cortisol. But if you are chronically sleep de- deprived, then that is likely going to be the case because your body is having to try and compensate for the lack of sleep by releasing more of this stress hormone. Okay. Now, if that happens for a year, that is going to cause some damage, but it is going to be repairable. 
Whereas if it happens for seven years or eight years or nine years, then that theoretically is going to drastically increase the likelihood that you're going to drop down dead of a heart attack or that you are going to develop some kind of disease. Because again, the body is not adapted to having high levels of cortisol all the time. So that compensation, although it may be beneficial for temporary survival, um, is becomes maladaptive over a long period of time. Makes sense. And I guess that in our modern world where we're seem to be anyway, I mean, I, I, I've heard this argued before. That's the only reason why I'm being um, I'm hesitating a bit. But I would say that in our modern world, we're certainly exposed to, if not more stress, uh, different stressors and maybe more chronic um, exposure to stress than we would have been kind of, you know, back in our hunter-gatherer days or something like that, then it seems like probably all of us are probably functioning in this kind of heavy allostatic mode. Uh, mm -hmm. Sorry, I keep on saying mode instead of load. Allostatic load um, mode. <laughs> uh, it, I just, it just kind of seems like maybe... Um, you know, like we, we mentioned, you know, the, you know, poor diet, um, wireless exposure, all these different things, you know, crazy job, family problems, relationship problems, all of that stuff like on us all the time. Um, it seems like probably none of us are functioning at that normal homeostatic level that all of us are probably, you know, have taken on this other level and are probably operating at a not ideal level. Yet it seems like that kind of state is normalized in today's society. Like you hear of people who might, you know, make a lifestyle change, like they might stop uh, going on social media so much, or they might change their diet or do something else, and they feel better. And they say, hey, I never noticed that I felt that bad before, but now mm. that I made this change, I feel better. And it's just strange. So I think that a lot of us are actually in this allostatic state and don't even recognize it. Yeah. And it's um, to, to the point of um, us having kind of whether we had more stress or less stress uh, back in the day. I mean, it's really difficult to say, I would say different types of stress. Mm -hmm. I think it seems that today the types of stresses are relatively hidden um we, we we're not very aware of them like for instance okay if you, if you're out in the wild you don't have any food like you know that's a problem you need to do something about it right whereas in our modern day world we, with our schedules with the kind of um the responsibilities that we have the chemicals the toxins the you know, you name it, the poor nutrition, all of this kind of stuff really has a very similar effect as other kinds of stresses would. But it it's almost like it's every single day and it's at a very low level. And I think that we don't necessarily have time to bounce back from that. Mm. You know, like for instance, before you go to bed, checking your emails. Well, checking your emails before you go to bed, like let's say you 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 finish work at 5 p.m. and you, you work quite a stressful job. So in your mind, when you finish work, the stress is over. It's done and you have relaxed time. But then you get home and you watch TV 
and you watch, uh, let's say you watch really captivating drama, that's stressful. That's inherently stressful. You know, if you're watching like a thriller or one of those series like Game of Thrones, that can be really stressful for your body. And then top it all off. You go on your computer just before you're going to go to bed or you check your smartphone. You've got the EMF coming from the smartphone, but then you're also looking at your emails. That is another stressor. It's only a minor stressor, but it actually has the same physiological response in terms of pushing up cortisol and lowering other kind of protective steroids. So it, it's really difficult to kind of quantify this, but it seems that our modern life, um, pushing ourselves to the limit all of the time, coupled with what I, I think probably a lack of education in terms of how we regulate our emotions, how we deal with stressful situations. Um, not many of us were ever taught how to deal with a stressful situation. I know that I wasn't. So my stress management was really poor. I had to kind of really teach myself that. So um, if we don't have these tools and we're exposed to these very minor stresses all of the time, then it seems to push up this cumulative load. Well, and what might start as a positive stressor, like uh, we're, they were talking about in the video, um, you know, being productive, getting your job done, can move into a toxic stress by the end of the day. So you may be motivated and stimulated and excited about your job and what you're doing, but by the end of the day, you've been overloaded and now you're in that toxic stress zone. Yeah. And it kind of seems like it's a it's a vicious cycle too, because in the example you gave Elliot, like that person by you know watching TV and then getting on their email and you know getting all charged up with uh, EMFs and blue light from the phone and all that kind of stuff, that's going to then disturb their sleep. So then they're not going to be repairing themselves properly over the course of the night. They're not going to reach the deep phases of sleep that the that you need for repair. So that's another stressor. And then, you know, that's not even bringing in what the, this theoretical person is eating for dinner and breakfast and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that could then be another stressor. Um, so it just, it seems like it's never ending. It's just kind of the, the you just get these, these cycles um, that increase the load more and more and more and more. Yeah, and, and, and this cumulative kind of effect, this buildup, uh, you know, Oftentimes, it manifests as what many people probably understand as a term called adrenal fatigue, which was popularized by a guy called Dr. Wilson, who came along and basically said, you know, cited research by this, the pioneer in stress physiology, Hans Selye, and, and he was citing this research showing that what happens when you chronically stress out animals persistent low dose stresses but over a very long time and you stop or you you inhibit their ability to kind of to um to rebound or have that have that break when it's very low level all, all of the time then you can actually cause the condition um again which is referred to as adrenal fatigue doesn't really necessarily exist uh, in physiology it's just kind of a uh, it's a it, it was incorrectly. It, it's like a misnomer, basically. Yeah, misnomer. Sorry. So, yeah, but, but basically it's a term used to describe this condition where people have flatlined energy. 
they get out up out of the morning and i mean that the the idea behind it was that you burn your adrenal glands out so so when you initiate a stress response when you come across some kind of a stressor what happens is is your body detects it it's detected in the brain sends a signal it's actually sends a signal to the amygdala that's a part of the brain where it's detected and then that sends a signal to the hypothalamus which goes down to the pituitary and then down to the adrenals and in the adrenals you have the release of something called cortisol and cortisol is known as the stress hormone so cortisol is one of the things which wakes you up in the morning okay your cortisol follows a, a diurnal rhythm Okay, and what this means is that it, it peaks in the morning time and then it goes all the way down towards the end of the day, or it should do, and then it peaks up again. It starts coming up about 4 a.m., and when it peaks, it peaks about half an, half an hour after you wake up, so you should feel very alert after you wake up. Um, and this is the way that it's meant to function. What it does is when you encounter a stressor, then essentially um, cortisol is mobilized. Your adrenal glands release cortisol and cortisol is used to basically come along and liberate glucose or liberate protein from muscles, liberate kind of lean muscle mass that, that can be sent to the liver and broken down into glucose to be used as, a, as an extra fuels, fuel source. So essentially what the stress response is doing is it's mobilizing extra energy so that you can do what you need to do because you may need some more energy. If you have to run a long time, you're going to need some more glucose. So that's what it's for. Now, the problem is, is that when this is chronic, when this happens again and again and again, what many doctors were actually finding was that they would have people come into their clinic and their diurnal cortisol rhythm wasn't diurnal anymore. In fact, it was flatlined. So they would find that when you're testing cortisol, you would, you would measure it via the saliva. You would do a salivary panel, and that would be four times throughout the day, one in the morning, one in the early afternoon, one in the late afternoon, and then one at night. And this would give you – it could tell you how much you're kind of – uh, secreting throughout the day it should be highest and then it should drop in the evening however the problem is is that many people were coming in and actually had really low levels of cortisol throughout the day and so this theory was that essentially what happens is, is that when you're chronically stressed what you're doing is you're wearing out the adrenal glands you're burning them out so to speak this is called adrenal fatigue or adrenal burnout the idea is, is that when you're releasing all of this, you're using up the resources in the adrenal glands and they can no longer make any more stress hormones. Now, it's a, it's a really cool theory. And, you know, it, the clinical presentation does occur like that. So some people generally do have low, level, low levels of stress hormones. They have no energy. They have fatigue. They have, you know, constant sleepiness they need to sleep 14 hours a day and they have might have anxiety or depression or something like that but what the researchers have actually kind of shown is that it's got not really much to do with the adrenal glands in fact it seems to be a brain-based mechanism um and it has to do with I think this allostatic load, this allostatic model, and I think this is a good way to explain it because if we look at the effects of cortisol we know that cortisol is essentially very destructive. It's a catabolic hormone, 
which means that he's breaking down not only muscles, but actually breaking down internal organs as well. So one of the things that chronic stress will do, one of the first places that you will derive gluconeogenic amino acids from is the gut. So when we look at things like gut health, leaky gut, Actually, one of the key drivers of this is cortisol, because when someone is chronically stressed, they are going to be like tearing apart their gut lining just to produce more glucose because they think they're going across a threat. Okay, but it's very interesting in the context of this allostatic load, because when someone is under chronic stress, what we actually see is that this has very specific effects on the brain. So the brain is extremely sensitive to the glucocorticoids, which are released from the adrenal glands, the cortisol and et cetera. Um, what's actually happening is the brain is that with repeated chronic stresses, um, and although animal research has been kind of very intense stresses, uh, this applies to many people in, in the modern world, probably many of us uh, who, who feel like we're under chronic stress. What is actually happening is that various parts of the brain actually undergo, undergo a, um, a process of remodeling. So we have um, an area of the brain which is associated with memory and actually um, putting experience into a coherent kind of memory format uh, on, on like a time frame. That's what it's said to do. And this is called the hippocampus. So what they've actually found is that under repeated exposure to glucocorticoids, the hippocampus, the hippocampus actually starts to shrink and it atrophies. Okay. On the other hand, we have um, the um, the amygdala. Okay. And the amygdala, this is another part of the brain. And this is, um, I'm not too big on neuroscience, but from what I remember, from what I understand, the amygdala is basically involved in how we're, um, uh, perceiving emotions, processing yeah. emotions, yeah. reacting, emotional regulation, anxiety, yeah. fear, aggression, yeah. yeah, depression. Yeah, and so so what they found is that actually the the amygdala becomes larger. So you've got the hippocampus, which is responsible for kind of storing memories and putting things in, in to where they need to go, and then you've got this highly reactive amygdala. Uh, you know, involved in the, the perception of stressful events or the perception of threats. You've got this hypertrophy. And, and what, what they found is that animals under chronic stress with this remodeling, it's like it, the entire neural pathways, the entire neurological system becomes primed for stresses, for I interpreting stresses or perceiving stresses. It becomes a lot more sensitive to that. Okay, it's like a hypersensitivity. And so these animals, and this is one of the kind of basis, the, the neurobiological basis, one of the reasons why early traumatic experiences are said to, to actually shape the brain in a way that someone for the rest of their life, um, unless they kind of really work on that, they are going to be primed to perceiving threats even when they are not necessarily there. Hmm. They're going to be hyper-reactive and hypersensitive um, because that's the, the environment that, that, they, that they were in when they were young and their brain had to kind of model itself based on that environment. Hmm. Which uh, that kind of Sorry. really describes like a person who is in that, what you would think of as an adrenal burnout kind of phase. 
that they are hyper-reactive and small little things that aren't really, that most of us would be like, that's really not stressful, like are just yep. overwhelming for them. That is exactly it. That is exactly it. Um, and it seems that, that what's happening, I mean, this is really interesting. The, the part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. So this is, um, if I remember correctly, this is like where a lot of our cognitive ability is, is based or cognitive activity. What they found is that there's this thing called adaptive plasticity under the, the effect of, of chronic stress hormones. So really high stress hormones, what's happening is you are suppressing neurogenesis. So that means the repair or the, um, yeah, the kind of regeneration of nerves. Um, but you're having changes in this prefrontal cortex. You're having shortening of den dendrites, shortening of neurons. And what these are actually doing are promoting anxiety and vigilance. So it's actually putting someone in this state where in this heightened state of vigilance, heightened state of anxiety, again, looking for a threat, even if it's not necessarily there, um, that is another strong possibility. And, and these are common clinical findings in someone who has gotten to the phase where they've been chronically stressed and then all of a sudden they get tipped over the edge, right? And it seems that the, the, the stress has had an effect on the brain. But what's also very, very interesting about chronically elevated stress hormones is that you have, it has a very strong effect on the immune system. So if someone has an autoimmune condition, let's say they have rheumatoid arthritis what might a doctor give them cortisone a steroid <laughs> that's exactly it yeah they give them a steroid because this because steroids cortisol is really it's the most potent anti-inflammatory in the entire body okay it is it is so strong and and the way that it's working is it's basically suppressing certain types of immune cells or immune mediators and these are called cytokines Okay, so what in the immune system, what you've got is you've got two primary branches of immune system. You've got the Th1 branch and you've got the Th2 branch. So the Th1 branch is really responsible for what we call cell-mediated immunity. And the um, basically in something like rheumatoid arthritis, the, it's these kinds of cells, these Th1 cells, which have gone eerie and uh, which are kind of attacking our cells, attacking our tissues. Um, but at the same time, it's responsible for attacking pathogens which get into cells. So for instance, if someone has like some kind of chronic infection, if they have a virus, it will be this branch of the immune system which is active. Okay, It's interesting because Glucocorticoids actually suppress that. But what they also do is they promote another branch of the immune system. And this branch is actually called um, the Th2 branch. And this is involved in things like allergies. Okay, so people who have food allergies, people who kind of um, react to pollen, this kind of stuff. So the reason I'm explaining this is because it's quite important for several reasons. Okay, so ordinarily, if we become infected by some kind of, let's say you have a virus or let's say you have some kind of nasty bacteria, you become infected by that, your body is going to mount uh, such a, a, an immense immune response. Okay, you're going to be releasing all of these really damaging pro-inflammatory cytokines. And these aren't necessarily selective. So these will cause damage to your tissue and to bacteria. Okay, so they need to be kept in check. 
they need to be kept in check. And this is why if someone gets an infection, an infection is a stressor, our body will also increase cortisol production. When we increase cortisol production, we are basically putting the brakes on our immune system because we don't want our immune system to go awry. We don't want it to kind of go overboard. We just want it working well enough to kill the bacteria. We don't want it to kill our cells. Does that make sense? Okay. Mm. So what happens in chronically elevated stress is that actually we suppress the cells responsible for attacking some kind of pathogen. So this is why you have someone, uh, I, I don't know if you know anyone, but I have quite a lot of people come to see me in my clinic who say that they are relatively healthy because they never get sick, even though everyone around them gets sick all of the time. You know, mm-hmm. so, say, say, you know, uh, in the wintertime, everyone comes down with a cold, they never get sick. And that is always something to look out for because if someone never gets sick, what it likely means is that they are their their cortisol is likely really high. It's suppressing that branch of the immune system. But what that's doing is it's actually opening up lots of doors for things like stealth and chronic infections. Because if you're not able to mount that immune response, because you're like you're suppressing those cells which would kill that pathogen then what's actually happening is you're allowing things to get in and you can't necessarily get rid of them so you can end up with like an infestation of something like mycoplasma right um this is one of the consequences of chronic stress Hmm. that's interesting that you say that because i can't remember where i read this but it was um probably a medical author's active like back in the 1930s. And he was talking about something to that effect where there are certain people that don't catch like common colds or the flu, but these people are chronically ill with some other type of disease, say something like uh, arthritis or emphysema or something like that. It's like they're so sick, they can't just get run of the mill uh, everyday illnesses, but they're battling this chronic illness. And I think that kind of reminds me of this chronically elevated level of cortisol where like their bodies are so sick, they can't just, you know, get a, an everyday illness and be able to fight it off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems that it's not that they're not being affected by the illness. Uh It's that they just can't fight it off. Mm -hmm. Um, their, their resources can't, you know, that they can't allocate them for whatever reason. And I think there's lots of reasons, but you know, one of the key signs of someone actually getting better, and I've seen this a couple of times is that they start getting colds. Like mm-hmm. say you, you do something and, and they start detoxing stuff. They start changing their diet. They start, you know, getting adequate sleep and then they come down poorly and they get, you know, they get a, the flu or something and they see that as a really bad thing. But actually it's a really good sign because it means their immune system is actually kicking into gear again. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, it's 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 interesting, but in the context of 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 this adrenal fatigue, right? In the context of adrenal fatigue, what what can actually happen then is when stress hormones really kind of tank and they become so low, um, 
there's, there's a couple of reasons or ideas of why this might actually occur. Um, but one of them is actually as, as, as like an allostatic protective adaptation is that, you know, when, when you're running on cortisol for a very long time, um, you're, you're breaking down tissue, you're suppressing the immune system and both of those things aren't very good. So there's this idea that actually what the body will do is kind of drop down cortisol production, drop down stress. And it, it's like a method of promoting immunity. So if someone has chronic infection, for instance, the research, if you look at it, then people who have chronic stress, um, people who have kind of conditions associated with low cortisol, such as fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome or PTSD, these people typically have really low cortisol. They also have much higher rate of chronic infections like mycoplasma and these kinds of things. So it's almost like the body is kind of saying, okay, if we've got this high level of stress all of the time, then our immune system or our immune cells can't, can't work as they need to. So actually what we're going to do is we're going to drop this and go into like sickness mode to allow our immune system to keep, to kick into gear. Mm. There's, there's like another theory as well. And it's called like the, the sickness theory of depression is that basically like when someone is depressed or one of the natural kind of functions of depression in, in kind of the, the body is to drop down cortisol, to be able to promote immune cells, to promote immune cell activity, basically take allocate all of the resources towards promoting immunity <coughs> And that is what depression is, is that depression is basically the state of really low cortisol and really low energy because the immune system is, is trying to do what it needs to do. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, not much practical kind of information there, but there's, there's, there's like a whole field looking at this stuff. Um, basically, what my point is, is that chronic stress is uh is not good. <laughs> well, that, <laughs> Long way of saying that. That makes me uh, ask a question: like, how does one best find balance? I know it's probably individual and it's based on many factors, but we all know that chronic stress is bad. But certain acute stressors can actually be good for you. Like, say, for instance, exercise. You're putting an acute stress on your body how much is too much or say um, cold therapy like you're immersing yourself into an ice bath i mean that's horrific stress but it's <laughs> it's short-lived and it actually uh, has a moon boosting property so how how what are some clues that we can use to kind of gauge our own stress tolerance and figure out how much is too much and how much is not enough do you do you mean objective measurements or do you mean uh, like symptoms both anything but yeah so there's i mean there's a really good way of objectively measuring in that and that's something called heart rate variability mm -hmm. so that's basically the 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 level of it's it's basically the the interval between heartbeats so it should ordinarily in parasympathetic mode it, there should be a an irregular interval whereas in sympathetic mode it gets quite regular so if you've got low heart rate variability so if your heartbeat is quite regular 
um, say throughout the night, then what that means is that your body is in a heightened state of sympathetic activity and that your recovery is likely not going to be very good. It, like you need more recovery from whatever activity or whatever stress you've done. Whereas, you know, if it's uh, more variable or it's a higher degree of measurement, then that would mean that you are in more parasympathetic and therefore you are your recovery is likely better. So that is a way that I measure it and a lot of other people measure their kind of recovery from different activities. Like you would mm. be amazed that after doing a workout, like you do, you know, a workout of doing some heavy weights, maybe you do half an hour or 40 minutes. I mean, sometimes like my heart rate variability tanks that night it goes it goes so bad and it doesn't even come back it takes like two or three days or four days to come back to normal and so there's people who are training in the gym every single day um as we're all kind of individual it you know i can't make any solid statements but i think that actually what many people do is they don't they don't know that there's they need to recover for longer periods of time right mm-hmm. but i think um probably symptom wise i mean how do you feel when um i guess you know did did you did you have energy when you felt like you could get out of bed in the morning i think that's a good measure um do you feel like you could walk 10 kilometers that's a fairly good measure but again this this is still really individual like some people mm-hmm. may never be able to walk 10 kilometers so that was a stupid example um, <laughs> well i don't know i think um people generally probably have a fairly intuitive understanding of how they deal like how how well they deal with stress um maybe not i mean maybe some people are unaware that you know they shouldn't be freaking out over what something somebody wrote on twitter or something like that but um I think in general, um, you, you, you know, feedback from other people maybe who are telling you that you're freaking out for no reason or something like that. Like, I think, I think in general, people have a, a kind of a, a, an intuitive understanding of how well they are handling stressors and how, or, or how terribly they're handling stressors. You know, for mm-hmm. somebody who's, um, you know, gets super stressed out when their bus is two minutes late or something like that and and isn't really able to deal with these kinds of situations i think there's a a good indication that they they aren't dealing with their stress properly well it seems like in a lot of the articles that we read for this show that they keep coming back to three different aspects on how to deal with stress and you approach them initially Elliot, but the, the diet seems to be number one Mm -hmm. and then, um, sleep. So sleep seems to be really important too. Um, and exercise, healthy exercise, regular and healthy exercise. So you were talking about getting your heart rate up and, and I know for a lot of people that that exercise, whether it's walking or running or lifting weights or any sort of yoga or Tai Chi that, um, it really almost helps you burn off the, those feelings of stress, if that makes sense. Like you mm. can kind of get it out of your physical body. I know for me that really works, you know, like if you're feeling really stressed, you just go out and walk up a hill or something or, you know what I mean, do a challenging exercise that kind of actually almost 
gets you out of breath, like where your your heart rate is going, but you're also having a hard time like breathing calmly. And then um, another big one, and a lot of doctors are starting to recommend it, is uh, meditation. Well, one, just you were talking about exercise there, Erica, and I, I just wanted to say that they actually, you know, Elliot, you were talking about how chronic stress can actually like shrink the hippocampus. Well, apparently one of the best things, Dr. Bruce McEwen was talking about this, one of the best things for increasing or restoring the size of the hippocampus is actually exercise. That's one of the things that actually is, is the best for um, recovery, essentially. Yeah, uh, and it, there's there's also you know it does it does I don't know if it's tied to this but like what you were saying, Erica, it it, it literally does degrade stress hormones. It's like there's two things that degrade stress hormones um, very well. One is exercise. It's almost like you're using some of those up, and sunlight. Mm. Um, but, but sunlight again is a stressor if it's not in the right context. Um, but it, that does degrade the stress hormones as well. But yeah, I found that was fascinating what Bruce McCune was saying about how like a lot of the effects on the brain with the remodeling, with the neural networks, the atrophy and the um, hypertrophy of the amygdala, all of this is pretty much reversible. Like it's malleable and you can do it. You can change things just by making small changes in your life um, to reduce the stress and, and kind of, um, the meditation. I mean, does anyone know about the mechanism of meditation and how that is affecting the brain? Does anybody Are we talking know? about the vagus I, nerve I here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be the vagus nerve. Could be. So um, if you're doing diaphragmatic breathing and the vagus nerve travels from your brain all the way down to your guts, passing through the diaphragm, if your diaphragm is moving in a rhythmic deep motion that can i guess they call it um tone increase your vagal tone mm -hmm. well isn't when you do that too doesn't it produce uh that vagus stuff is that what they call it <laughs> i'm probably not saying it properly but essentially it's acetylcholine right that your body is um it's like you can self-administer by just taking those deep diaphragmatic belly breaths that Tiff is talking about, and you can actually start to slow everything down. And um, I, I mean, it works. I, I'm a true believer in it 100% that if you could take five minutes to just slow everything down and take deep belly breaths, that you can actually change all the that chemical stuff that's going on in your brain. And the, the real challenge is actually doing it, you know? I mean, you see this when you deal with upset children. Like, if you can get them to calm down and breathe, you can really take them out of that kind of stress state pretty quickly. In adults, I think we've become so maladapted that, you know, we come up with 10 million excuses of why, no, I don't have, I don't have time to take 10 breaths right now. You know, it's almost right. like being addicted to the stress. I, I, I really think I mean, I, I can say I've experienced it myself. So um, I think it's a it's a real first step for a lot of people is to to just try and take a breath, you know, seriously. 
Well, you say you say being addicted to stress. It's it's funny because when we're releasing catecholamines like adrenaline, which is part of the stress response, if I remember correctly, you're also releasing certain um, endorphins as well. Mm. So in preparation for injury, because if we're in a stress state, then we're putting ourselves in a situation where we might, you know, in historically, evolutionarily speaking, we may have been injured in a, you know, if we're in a fight or something. And so what we're doing is we're releasing endorphins in the brain, which are like feel good chemicals. Right. And these are like, you know, very pleasurable feelings. And so, I think the addiction to stress is a very like literal thing. I, I honestly do. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you think of the like the high-powered executive or something like that who's in a constant stressed-out state, or even like the adrenaline junkie kind of like extreme sports guys and stuff like that. They for sure are are kind of addicted to that that stress kind of thing. But um, and you can see how it would be that positive aspect of stress initially, you know, overcoming mm-hmm. those fears and being inspired. And then very quickly, it could lead to toxic stress, you know, where you're never quite meeting that threshold. I'm thinking of like skydivers or big wave surfers or skateboarders, you know, it, it, you can definitely overdo it. Definitely. One thing I wanted to point out was um, Elliot, all that stuff that Elliot was talking about on his, um, about uh, adrenal fatigue um, or the lack of adrenal fatigue. He actually wrote a really good article on SOT.net that was called, if you've got adrenal fatigue, there's likely nothing wrong with your adrenals. So if you want more information on that, you should check it out. I didn't have a time to interject there when you were talking (laughs) about that specifically, but people should check that article out. It's very good. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, you know, but, uh, you know, it's still all just theoretical stuff. The question is, like, what can we actually do about it? You know, because we can say, oh, well, there's this hormone and there's that hormone. And, you know, I like all of that stuff. That's really cool. But you take away from it what what works. Um, so there's the breathing exercises how often how often can we do those how 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 slow you know is there a way of doing it is there a program maybe is that a plug what do you think erica is there a program (laughs) yes there's definitely a program erolis damien would you like to show the website so our viewer uh check it out is there an app for that (laughs) is there a what an app is that on the iphone right (laughs) yeah if it's got youtube (laughs) yeah exactly and one of the great things about this program i'm gonna plug it back to the belly breathing is it something that you can do any time of day in any moment i mean you can be sitting on the phone with a, a co-worker or a client and you can practice the diaphragmatic belly breathing it's not something that you have to you know go to a yoga studio or a room and be quiet it's just really learning how to shift your body from that stress mode by using your breath yeah and essentially it's doing what we were talking about earlier with the vagus nerve it's a, a stimulating of the vagus nerve um which kind of switches you from sympathetic mode 
which is the stressed mode, into the parasympathetic mode, which is the calm, vigilance kind of mode of being. Right, and um, is there what else? What else? Wait, <laughs> what else can we try to do? Are you asking what our arsenal is? <laughs> yeah, what, what's the arsenal? There's got to be a few, a few tools in the toolbox, right? I'll share mine. I have an arsenal. So, so I definitely do the belly breathing. I do the pipe breathing. Um, that's also in the EE program. Um, I'm a yoga teacher, so I do yoga. And my new thing now for a lot of people is, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't have the time for that, which is always kind of, you know, you don't want to roll your eyes because, uh, <laughs> but, um, 10 or 15 minutes a day of just even grounding, balancing, noticing your body, breathing, uh, taking kind of an objective observation. If you've got pain or, or chronic illness, just kind of being present really is, is a practice and it doesn't take a lot of time. Silence is actually another one that I've really been enjoying, you know, when you, especially if you work in a chaotic, loud environment, um, to even on your drive home, turn off your radio, have just complete silence. So you can kind of just, again, be present and, um, writing actually, you know, hard day, come home at the end of the day, sit down and just write down your day that happened and, and physically get it out of your body. I feel like for a lot of people that store stress in their body, physically getting the stress out of your body and writing can really do that for a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of great info out there on writing for trauma, you know? Yeah. So I think that those are, those are practices that you can do every day that don't take a lot of time. So the whole, I don't have time thing. I, I feel like is kind of a cop out for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, you have the time if you really don't want to go into that toxic mode of stress. Yeah. I find that meditation has been quite helpful for me. I just like every morning when I wake up, I kind of meditate for 10, 20 minutes, something like that. I find that it's actually quite, quite helpful for, you know, I can't, I can't necessarily put my finger on exactly how it helps, but it definitely makes me feel more resilient to stress and maybe more able to put it in its proper perspective rather than getting caught up in the moment. So... I've, I've always found that quite helpful. Going out in nature, even though I don't do it very often, it really is, um, it, it's almost like a meditative experience, actually. Um, and I know there's been studies and stuff where they've actually shown that, um, that actually going into nature um, and experiencing nature is um, de-stressing. It actually does um, decrease stress. Yeah, even 20 minutes. Um, I was just reading an article recently about how even all of the um, smells from the trees and whatnot affect your mm. brain and the chemistry and, you know, even the smell of the dirt and all these things are very calming to your energetic system. So I definitely think that there's something to that. Houseplants, even, even just having houseplants is supposed to be helpful. Apparently. Yeah. Even if you can't trek into the woods, mm. then you could sit on your, if you have a deck or a 
a patio or in your backyard. I like to just sit out and have the sun just beam down on me for about 30 minutes at least. If it's not too hot, if it's at the right time of day, like the early morning sunshine is very good for you. Let it hit my face, let it go into my eyeballs, and I find it very refreshing. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And that's one of the ways that you're going to help to promote that diurnal rhythm as well, mm-hmm. um, because that's just as important in, in terms of giving us the tools to be able to have some resilience against stresses is, is, is being able to regulate our hormones, being able to keep them within the cycles that they're meant to be in. And we need kind of uh, external stimuli to be able to entrain those cycles. Um, one of those is, is, is the light. So if we can get some morning light, then that's a great start. Um, another thing actually is ideally w- one thing that I found is actually people think that exercising is good objectively, like it is, it's just objectively good. Um, whereas there is context. And I think that many people, like we were talking about exercise. Um, what I would say is that the, the, the benefits of exercise seem to be like in the research, it seems to be in the morning or like mid afternoon, like when people do exercise just before they go to bed, like that's a great way of cranking up those stress hormones. Yeah. Like it really is. It's really, it's a stressor, right? And mm-hmm. and you don't, you don't want that just before bed. And so some people think that it's okay or it's a good idea to, you know, come home from work <laughs> and then, and then go to the gym. Um, until like nine o'clock and then go into bed and then they wonder why they can't sleep. So yeah, I just say that's just a little tidbit. If you do do exercise, try do it in the morning or like in your lunch, your lunch break or in the afternoon, rather try not to do it in the evening time. Cause that could kind of mess with your stress response. Yeah. And Oh, and, and there's one more thing is actually coffee. What? Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I I recently did an experiment actually, so I uh I gave up coffee. Mm. Okay, um, how long did you I go sp- for? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm currently I had some today, but I'm, I'm currently on like four four or five days. I found it was okay, um, but what I found is, and what the research seems to support, and what many people's experience seems to kind of support is that for some people at least coffee seems to have well we know that it can increase cortisol and adrenaline output now that's not necessarily a bad thing but for some people that seems to be for quite a long period of time so it can be that it can increase out cortisol output for 16 hours after oh, the cut really yeah in some susceptible individuals Huh. It can increase, it can have an effect on the, the adrenal glands for up to 16 hours if they if they don't clear the caffeine quickly. Okay, and so I did an experiment. I thought that I was one of the people who could tolerate it very well. I thought that. But actually what I found was that when I, you know, I used my aura ring, so this tracks heart rate variability. I found as soon as I gave it up, my heart rate variability jumped up about 20 points mm. and it re- it remained that way for about three days. And then I had a cup of coffee and then 
check my uh, markers of my stress response, and they they went they went up basically. So so it showed that when I had the coffee, even though it was just one or two cups in the morning time, I had the coffee, and it actually pushed up my stress response. Um, and so I've gone a couple more days without it, and actually my sleep is is kind of improved. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, I would say that there are some things that we do on a regular basis in our diet and in our kind of lifestyle, especially the coffee, which can be uh, unknowingly stressful as well. So watch out for that. Well, that's not what I wanted to hear, Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, yeah. Anyway. What about one last thing, uh, Elliot, you had brought up in our discussion previous to the show about adaptogens, like plants? Yeah. Yeah, so so there's some fantastic adaptogens. Now, you know, th- there's quite a lot of different uh, products that you would be able to use for for you know cortisol issues it depends really it's someone where someone is at the stage so if they are what you would call adrenal burnout they've got like really low amounts of stress hormones they're right kind of far gone then you would want to be using something that was potentially going to augment um cortisol synthesis so there could generally be an issue with the raw material to make the hormone but it could also be something else and so something that people generally use that can be used is licorice what you see what can happen in in some people is that actually what they're doing is they're inactivating the stress hormones too quickly and so what licorice can do is actually um prevent the can prevent the deactivation of cortisol to cortisone so it can preserve cortisol now that's not good for someone who has high levels of cortisol you don't want to give them that it's for someone who's got low levels now there are certain adaptogens and the concept of an adaptogen is that you can give it you can give the adaptogen it possesses specific qualities which can essentially adapt to someone's individual physiology whereby you can give one person it let's say that one person has high amounts of something and you give it to another person who has low amounts of something, what it can do is it can lower the one thing in the one person and increase the thing in the other person. So it has seemingly paradoxical effects, but what it seems to be doing is just introducing some kind of balance, right? So if things are out of balance, then it can help to bring them back into balance. So what you can use ashwagandha, I mean, these are very kind of common ones, but ashwagandha is very good. Typically you would want to use 300 to 400 milligram if my memory is correct. Um, You can use ashwagandha. um, I think you can use ashwagandha even towards bedtime. I have some people using it in the evening time and find that it really helps to lower um, if they, if they're type of person who gets into bed they feel like they've got palpitations or anything like that racing thoughts ashwagandha generally helps greatly um there is also it can be combined with rhodiola rhodiola is typically good um for any contacts which is high or low stress hormones it can take a while to work rhodiola um i can't remember the dosage for i think it's maybe a thousand milligrams yeah but i could be wrong about that but rhodiola is another one. Again, there's lots on the internet. You can use things like Siberian ginseng and 
all of this other kind of stuff. There, there, but there is another supplement which is very useful for adapt uh, for having. Well, it's not an adaptogenic effect, but it is a cortisol lowering effect, and this is called phosphatidylserine. So the um, the research on this is really consistent. Now, I'm not sure how it's working. What it seems to be doing is sensitizing the HPA axis to circulating levels of stress hormones so that it kind of, you see, what can happen is, is when there's high levels of stress hormones, if there's like a desensitization of the system, which is picking up that or detecting that, then there's no signal to shut it down. There's no signal to reduce those levels. Whereas I think what phosphatidylserine is doing, if I remember correctly, is actually sensitizing that system to be able to detect circulating levels and stop producing more. That makes sense. And I think that that's one of the ways that the adaptogens are working as well, is they're actually working on many different levels, but I don't think they're actually shutting down the adrenal glands. What they're doing is they're having effect on the systems which are detecting these these hormones and kind of bringing back some form of communication. I d- I'm not sure about the exact mechanism off the top of my head. Um, I can't think of anything else at the moment. Anyone you know, else got um, any? The phosphatidylserine, you know what the dosage is? The recommended dosage for that is? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, phosphatidylserine, if I remember correctly, you're looking at about 300 milligrams. 300 milligram uh, twice daily, maybe. Twice daily, I think. Um, Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, Yeah, it depends. I mean, it's not something that you can overdose on. Same as the adaptogens. I think you don't want to go overboard. Um, There's lots of articles saying exactly what doses work because there have been research showing that like, when you use too much, it's like more doesn't equate to better right it's like there there is like a bell curve so you don't want to use too much of one herb um but likewise you don't want to use not enough so uh, yeah i'm sorry i can't remember the the doses i I haven't got them on me uh one more is valerian root valerian root is typically very good for sleep Mm -hmm. um but it's what many people use to to kind of lower down their cortisol as well um and that works so yeah those are some temporary solutions, but I think if we can try to organize our life in a way, you know, by building good habits, a consistent sleep cycle, waking up at the same time every night and trying to go to sleep at the same time, roughly, you know, getting a bit of exercise, um, kind of organizing our time so that we're not having to run for the bus when we've only got two minutes to catch it. And it's, Mm-hmm. Five, five minutes away you know it's just little things like that basically getting your house in order so that you're minimizing the chaos in your local environment so that almost like you've got enough resilience that when you do come across some kind of chaotic event you have some kind of ability to to deal with that yeah. you know because if your life is utter chaos that is going to be a major energy drain and like this may not, it's not physiologically correct, but like the way I like to conceptualize it is if you only have a certain amount of energy to be able to basically control how you're reacting to stressful situations, you know, into, to, to, to really sort sort of regulate that, then you don't want to waste that on small, stupid things around the house. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to be tripping over your, 
your clothes on the top <laughs> of the stairs. You don't want to, you just don't need to be, do you? So that's an unnecessary stress. Yeah, those yeah. kind of things. So if you can minimize those, then that's one of the best things you can do. Yeah. I concur. <laughs> right, okay then. Is anyone um anything else to add? <laughs> We do have a pet health segment. Right, okay. <laughs> so maybe we should go to the pet health segment then. Yeah. segment of the objective health program this week's topic is dogs who know when the owners are coming home i talked about this topic and rupert sheldrake research before but this time also going to share an interesting footage for those who don't know his research rupert sheldrake is an innovative biologist and writer best known for the theory of morphic fields morphic resonance unexplained powers of animals and telepathy so take a look because this is surely Fascinating and curious. Many dogs know when their owners are coming home. Cats do it too, and a number of other animals. Occasionally rabbits, guinea pigs, uh, quite often parrots, and other domestic animals do this. They seem to anticipate the arrival of the person by going and waiting at a door or window, or in the case of parrots, they sometimes actually announce verbally who's going to come. They wait they sometimes know 10 minutes or more in advance. Um, the reason I think it's telepathic is because we've actually done experiments to test this. The obvious standard armchair skeptical explanations are that it's just routine timings, a biological clock, clues given by people at home, um, sounds of familiar car engines, that kind of thing. Um, so what we've done is experiments where people go at least five miles away, they come home at random times that they're not, they don't know in advance, communicated to them by a telephone pager. They come home in taxis or other unfamiliar cars. No one at home knows when they're coming. The position where the animal waits is filmed continuously, so we have a con continuous video record the whole time they're out. Uh, this shows that uh, some dogs, not all, but some dogs reliably predict uh, the return of their owner over and over again in a way that's highly significant statistically that shows that uh, it must be something like telepathy uh, because it can't be explained in any of these other standard ways. Here's the second video from our ongoing research exploring whether the connection we have with our dog can form a telepathic link that lets the dog know when the owner's coming home. As many of you know, this research was originally pioneered by Dr. Rupert Sheldrick in his book dogs that know when their owners are coming home. The Dogs That Know project aims to extend this research by looking at more dogs over a longer period of time in order to better understand this amazing phenomenon. Here's our second video. The setup for this experiment is similar to the first except for two important differences that I'll talk more about later. There's a webcam with a time recording feature and it's positioned to record the same hallway we recorded in the first trial. Again, this is the spot where the family has identified as a place where Tommy and sometimes Princess demonstrate their unique waiting behavior. We're ready for Jane to start the video recording and leave the house. 
like before the exact time of the owner's departure and return is non-routine and doesn't follow any pattern and when she leaves there's no one else in the house unlike the first trial this time we'll be measuring Tommy's reaction to Jane's son John when he comes home we found the dogs in the house are more sensitive to the first person that comes home and are less likely to wait when someone is in the house another difference between this trial and the first is the time and distance of the return trip in the first experiment Jane was almost 10 miles from home and took 13 minutes to return this time John is almost 20 miles away and will take almost 25 minutes to come home we've sped up the video but keep your eye on Tommy notice that just like last time he never lays down in the hallway he never waits okay this point marks the time that John begins heading for home watch what happens within a minute or two after he begins his trip Tommy gets up and moves to the spot in the hallway we've identified as his waiting spot now keep watching Tommy just like in the first trial he doesn't budge from this spot and this time around he stays there for almost 18 minutes while John is on the way home and only gets up when John's car is near the driveway the results from this second trial were nearly as amazing as the first Tommy's telepathic link with his owner caused him to wait in the exact spot that the owners predicted and this waiting behavior was dramatically different when John was on the way home compared to when he wasn't well thanks for that Zoya that was um I always find it really amazing hearing about those um the experiments by Sheldrake <clears throat> yeah really fascinating um so I think that's that's everything for today all about stress has anyone got anything that they'd like to finish on nope no nope. <laughs> okay then right well um yeah, if you uh, if you like the show, you found it helpful, please uh, like and subscribe to Objective Health down below, the red button, and uh, leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Um, share it on social media. And uh, so yeah, so your hosts checking <laughs> checking out. Um, thanks for listening, and uh, see you next week. Bye. Bye.